West Bowles, good morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, this morning, fill my mouth with your words and fill our hearts in this place with your spirit. We ask that you'll prepare our hearts to hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, question. How many of you in here know a man named Mike Kettle here at the church? <laughs> Charity, that's his wife over there cheering for him. Well, Mike is right over here, and Mike and his wife Charity and their three kids have been here at the church for a number of years. And it was about a year and a half ago, Mike, if I get this wrong, just stand up and correct me, all right? About a year and a half ago, Mike and I were talking, and I was asking him, you know, what, what did you do before you ever walked through the doors of a church? And so Mike was telling me about his background, and basically to sum it up, Mike was a bouncer. Mike was a bouncer at, at bars, at clubs, at concerts, and he said something that when he said it, I went, oh my goodness, the whole church needs to hear that because it says so much about so much. Here's what he said. He, he's, he's broken up his fair share of fights, obviously, being a bouncer before, and he said there are basically two types of people that get into a fight. Okay, the first one is the kind of person who's really, really good at this. Just talk, 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 talk. They run their mouths. Okay, and the second kind of person who gets into a fight is really, really good at this, with their fists. And he said that first type of person, well, they, nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, the, the talker is not very good with their fists. And the person who's really, really good with their fists, they don't need to do any of this. And, and so I just back up from that for a minute to ask you a question. When something progresses all the way to the point that it becomes a fight, how useful is this? How useful is that? Not very. Not very. I mean, unless they're trying to talk themselves out of it, but usually this is what got them into it, right? You, you may know some people like that. Well, um, why do I bring all that up? Because we here at West Bulls Community Church, we want you to go undefeated in every single fist fight you ever get into, okay? No, that's not why I bring it up. The reason I bring it up is because a couple weeks ago, we started this series here at the church going through the book of James. James, the brother of Jesus, as a result of looking at Jesus' life and experiencing Jesus as his own personal savior, he wrote some things down as a result of all that. And he, he really, when you look at the book of James, he gives a picture of what faith looks like. And as Thomas pointed out a couple weeks ago, what does faith look like? When trials hit, when the battles show up in life, when there's a fight in our lives, what does real faith look like in real life? And as part of filling out that picture, James actually speaks to this issue. Not bar fights, okay, but this, the talking. In fact, look at how James refers to it. This is uh, James chapter 2, verse 14, where we're going to be this morning. He says, what good is it? And some translations say, what use is it? Brothers and sisters, if a person claims, notice the emphasis on the mouth, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds. I mean, that's, that's kind of like talking our way into a fight and relying on this to get us through, isn't it? And, and I think that there's one idea this morning. If, if there's just one idea we could take away, it's simply this, that living Faith, useful faith, speaks louder through our hands, not our mouths. 
Living faith speaks loudest through our hands, not our mouths. Okay, now you hear that, and I think we all think, well, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, that, it sounds good, right? We have sayings that kind of revolve around that. You practice what you preach, put your money where your mouth is. But James, as we're going to see this morning, he highlights some things. He said, look, if, if we're not careful, there are some spheres to who, who we are. There are pieces of all of us that can get in the way of what is really useful faith when it comes to this life. And those areas can actually get in the way and we can, you can, we can use those as a substitute for living faith when the fights and the trials and the battles of life come up. And then look, look how he actually ends that verse. He says, can such faith save them? Can such faith save them? Here's why I think we got to talk about this. Because when God decided to enter into a relationship with human beings, he gave human beings the ability to trust him, to have faith in him. And he said, you know what? I want that to be a useful faith. Not one day when we're all, you know, in heaven with him in eternity, but right now. For every single day as we walk through this life, I want you to have a faith that has practical implications for everything that you walk through. Every single thing you walk through. And so James, James, is, as you'll see in the second half of chapter 2, James chapter 2 this morning, he is filling out a picture of what useful faith looks like. But in order to do that, he's got to unearth some things inside his audience, inside you and me, that we think are useful that actually turn out to be useless. Absolutely useless. And I got to tell you up front, as I read this, I thought, oh my goodness, I recognize so much of Nathan in, in some of these useless pieces, if I'm not careful. I realize there are times in my life, in my faith, where I've been trying to engage the battles and the fights of life with this right here. The truth is we all do. Well, let's dive in. Take a look at what James says. This is chapter 2, verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. It is amazing to me that this was written 2,000 years ago, and yet here is a very real-world, real-life example. You don't have to draw any parallels. This situation still happens today. In fact, here at the church, there's probably not a week that goes by that there's not somebody who is here, who shows up looking for food, looking for clothes, looking for shelter. We all know this situation. We've all seen this. We've all come across this. He says, suppose somebody's without clothes and daily food. Verse 16. If one of you says to them, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? What use is it? I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine asking somebody for directions to get downtown Denver and they hand you a globe? It's useless. This is what James is getting at here. But you know what feels so good to give somebody? when they have needs and they're right in front of us, we want to give them something. And so you know what we do? We give them this. It's tempting to give them this. And yet James, he says this. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You know what James is pointing at here? He's pointing at the first thing we substitute for living faith. And you know what it is? It's good intentions. Good intentions. In fact, this raised the question for me. I just thought, oh my goodness. I, I'm, I dare not write down all the statements that run through my head during the day that start with this. 
I should really dot, dot, dot sometime. You know, I should really dot, dot, dot sometime. It's those things that we've put no time and date to, we haven't put on the calendar. You know what those are? They're good intentions. Do we have any um, children of the late 70s or the 80s or the early 90s here? I'm, I'm one of them. Okay, how about this? Do we have parents of children of the late 70s, the 80s, or early 90s here? Because you're going to remember this maybe more vividly than your, your children. How many of you know what this is right here? Yeah, those of you who are laughing, you know exactly what this is. It's a Nintendo cartridge, okay? Original Nintendo, okay? Not Nintendo 5 billion or whatever we're on right now. Is it the Switch? The Switch? I'm relevant. Okay, so <laughs> these things provided hours of fun, hours and hours of fun. These were actually the reason I got grounded so much because I was given a 30-minute limit and um, I went way past 30 minutes. But these were hours of fun, when they worked. What you would do is you'd slide these into the machine, you push them down, you hit the power button, and again, when they worked, hours of fun. When they didn't, you got this like screwed up graphic, um, or you'd get this blinking screen, just blue, gray, blue, gray, blue, gray. And what was our solution to cleaning these things, to try to get them to work? Yeah. <laughs> because this was our theory. Somehow, layer upon layer upon layer of dust has, has accumulated on the copper contacts here. Layers of it since I last played the game 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and so we thought, well, duh, the theory is, is if there's dust there, you just blow it off. Well, there was a guy who decided to test this theory. He basically went into it with the question, was that really all that useful? Did that help anything? And so what he did is he decided for 30 days, he got two Nintendo cartridges. And for 30 days, he decided to eight to 10 times a day, that's what he figured out the average number of times a kid would blow into these was. And you remember, we got dizzy, we passed out on the floor, we weren't sure what we were doing when we woke up, okay? For 30 days straight, he would blow into this cartridge. And then with the other cartridge, he would use Nintendo's recommended cleaning method, which was you take a Q-tip, you dip it in isopropyl alcohol, and you clean these copper contacts in the cartridge. Well, 30 days later, the, the cartridge that he used the recommended method on, he put it in, what do you think happened? Worked flawlessly, okay? Then, he put in the one that he blew into, eight to 10 times a day for 30 days straight. What do you think happened? Blinking screen. Blinking screen. In fact, he took the cartridge apart and, and looked at the, he posted a picture of the contacts. A film, a residue had actually built up on the copper contacts from just the moisture in his breath. That is disgusting. But here's what he concluded. He said, how sad. Millions of children worldwide, all those years, all they were doing was blowing hot air. It didn't actually do anything. You know what James is getting at? How sad. If all we do is blow hot air. It's useless. It's absolutely useless. And James continues. You're going to see it's not just good intentions that we think living faith speaks through. We also 
We also do what he says next. Look at what he says in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is with, uh, without, nope, that's what I just read. All right, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. He's setting up kind of an imaginary person to make an argument that would have been common at that time. You have faith, I have deeds. In other words, he's saying, somebody, let's suppose somebody came along and wanted to separate faith from deeds. And James, in response, he says this. He says, well, show me your faith without deeds. We all have faith in something, whether we admit it or not. It's a, it's a, a being, a person, a thing. Let me ask you. That object or that person or that being that you have faith in, how would you show somebody that you have faith in it without deeds? You can't. You can't. And James says that. He says, and I will show, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. And then he's going to make a point here. You believe there is one God. You believe there is one God. This would have really spoken to his audience because the culture at that time, many people walked around and there was, there was a God for different areas of life. And so people believed in, in a variety of different gods. And so he's speaking to an audience that thought, oh, I'm good. Because compared to everybody else, I believe in one God. I believe in one God, so I'm set. And I know there's just one God. And so they're walking around with this knowledge going, I'm good. And he goes on. He shocks them, actually. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even demons believe that. Yikes. He's saying, look, it's possible for you to be enlightened in your mind and to know the right things. I mean, even demons can do that. Even demons know something that lines up with what you know. But what makes them demons? Their deeds. Their deeds. See, we also like to think that, live, that faith speaks not just through intentions, but through intellect. We love to think that faith, if, if I just know the right things then my faith is alive, and it's well. It'd be kind of like if you walked me outside right now and said, hey, Nathan, see that tree right there? You know, all the leaves are off. That tree right there is an apple tree. And I guess I could take your word for it. I don't know anything about trees. But what tells us that it's actually an apple tree? Apples. Apples. The fruit that it produces, that's what tells us it's an apple tree. Not just the knowledge that it's an apple tree. Because that doesn't help us this time of year, does it? And then look how he finishes this verse. Because I think this highlights another area that we, we think faith speaks through. And we put a lot of emphasis on. He says, even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Have you ever shuddered or cringed at something? Okay, let me just ask, how many of you, the sight of a spider in your house? Yeah, we all know that feeling. A lot of people that cringe at the sight of a spider. And the reason you cringe is because that thing that you know about spiders, it produces a very emotional response to the point that it's visceral. It actually makes you shudder and cringe. And I read that and I thought, wow. We can actually know the right things. We can actually even feel the right things. We can be stirred emotionally and still be totally lost. 
James says even demons do that, and demons can shudder. And this one hit me this week because how often am I tying my faith to emotion? It's not that emotion is a bad thing. We were wired with it. But how often do I just want that? You've heard them called spiritual highs, right? And, And I love those when they come along. But the reality is, you don't walk around with them 24-7, 365 days a year. And it's possible to be stirred up intellectually, stirred up emotionally, and still be lost. And for some of us, it's the opposite. If we don't feel an emotional, spiritual high, it's easy to think, oh, I must have no faith. I've talked to too many teenagers who've been in that place. I've talked to too many adults who have been in that place, and I've, I've even experienced it myself. I think the absence of an emotional high says something about whether or not my faith is alive. We often want faith to speak through, through emotion and how it feels. There was, um, there was a, a time, and, and I have these more frequently, that um, in the process of exercising, there are just, somebody told me once, Nathan, If you're in a habit of exercising, keep it going because the motivation will go down as you get older. So I came across this article and it had these tips for being motivated to go exercise when you don't feel like it. And it said, if ever you you don't, or if ever you lack the motivation to go exercise, here's what you do. You get up in the morning and, and first thing, put on workout clothes and that will motivate you to go exercise. So I tried this one morning. I got up put on a t-shirt, I didn't mind getting sweaty, I put on some workout pants, put on some running shoes, and I sat down on the couch. And I sat there and I went, wow, the, the ankle support in these running shoes while I sit here and do absolutely nothing is incredible. And these pants are so breathable and they wick away the sweat, it's amazing, while I do absolutely nothing. In fact, there was a, there was a, a market study that was done over a period of five years. And um, what this, these researchers did is they, they studied the sales of yoga clothing compared to enrollment in yoga classes. <laughs> so over a five-year period, yoga clothing sales increased by 45% in the market they studied. Enrollment in actual yoga classes and places that offered yoga, it went up 5%. We like to feel. We like to feel it, don't we? We like to think faith speaks through emotion and we center on that. And James says, you know what? If, if that's what you're depending on, it's useless. It's absolutely useless. In verse 20, James says, do you want further evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And now he's going to point to faith that is actually very useful. He's going to, having established that it's not enough to intend it. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to feel it. Here is what living faith, what useful faith looks like when you get into the battles, the fights, the trials of life. Verse 21, he says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? He's pointing back to a story that takes place in Genesis chapter 22, in the first book of the Bible, in which God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, 
and I want you to bring him to the altar and make him a sacrifice to me. Now, I don't know what Abraham intended in that moment. I doubt it was to do what he was just asked. I don't know what Abraham knew in that moment, but I could probably guess what he was feeling, just trying to put myself in his shoes. And yet, you know what James points out that Abraham did? He put one foot in front of the other and walked to that altar. It's an incredible story if you get a chance to read it. Genesis chapter 22. And James goes on. He says, you see that his faith and his actions, pay attention to this next phrase, were working together. And his faith was made, look at this word, complete by what he did. You want to know what takes faith? When the circumstances aren't ideal, when it looks like there will be terrible consequences, to put one foot in front of the other when God has made it clear that's what needs to happen. That is faith. And James goes on. He says, verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. And then James throws this verse out there that has created so much angst and so much fighting and so much even angst within me when I read it because I go, well, that doesn't line up with what I've thought. Verse 24, he says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And I read that and I go, okay, whoa, wait a second. See, James, there's this guy named Paul, and Paul didn't say that. This is one of those places where I, I feel like the Bible's contradicting itself. Because Paul said, we're saved by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, so that no one could boast. And what we have to remember is who Paul's audience was and who James' audience is. Because Paul was talking to a group of people who it was easy for them to walk around and go, you know what, I'm, I'm good with God, because look what I did. Oh, I'm good with God. Look what I did. And it was easy to compare what their deeds to one another. And James, James was talking to an audience that wanted to separate faith from deeds. Paul's talking to an audience that wanted to hold up deeds over faith. And James was talking to an audience that wanted to hold up faith over deeds. And you know what? They're actually both saying the same thing. Both James and Paul are saying, no, no, no. The nature of the faith that God gives us living faith is not faith or deeds. It's not faith or works. It's faith that works, that produces something. It has an outcome. Paul was saying, look, faith is the root of your salvation. And James says, deeds are the fruit of your salvation. They work together. Living faith speaks loudest through our hands, not our mouths. A few weeks ago, Thomas, Thomas shared with you that I had, this, I had this lawn business for a number of years. And um, I will never forget, there was one lawn that, um, some of you were my lawn customers actually, don't worry, it's not in here, okay? But there's this one lawn that I just dreaded every single time I came to it. It would take forever, there was no easy way to get it done and do it well. And you just had to spend the time. And so I showed up one time at this lawn and I had gone around the edges and trimmed all the edges and then I got the mower off the trailer, started up the engine, and I'm going across the lawn 
And about halfway through mowing this lawn, it's like something is not right. Like the lawn looks no different than when I first got here. It looks the exact same. It's like, oh well, we'll keep going. So I kept going, got done, putting the mower back on the trailer. This is like an hour and 20 minutes after I got there. And I had this realization, oh my gosh, I never turned on the blades. Never turned on the blades at all. I mean, I, I intended to mow the lawn and I knew I should mow the lawn and I felt like I was mowing the lawn and yet I hadn't engaged the blades. You know what James says? Living faith what engages the blades. It turns on the blades. It produces something. And after establishing all this, that living faith does not speak through intentions or intellect or emotion, James points at what is maybe the most beautiful part of this entire passage. And I think this is the piece that really speaks to us. Look at what he says. In the same way, verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? See, it's easy to point at Abraham. We call him, there's a nickname for him. He's the father of faith. Like if you want to see an example of somebody stepping out despite the circumstances or the consequences, look at Abraham. And James says, but look at this example. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? Rahab the prostitute, if you don't know her story, she was, she was a woman who basically lived among and with and thought the same as the enemies of God. They were constantly opposed to God's people. And yet James points at Rahab. And I thought, oh my goodness, there is something so big there for us. Because I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I've looked at me and I've gone, I'm not like Abraham. I, I don't have a faith that, that could do what Abraham does. And, and it's easy to think that, well, God just doesn't see me the same. You want to know the beauty of James chapter 2? It starts with this idea where James says, show no favoritism. Do you want to know why James says that? Because God shows no favoritism. When he looks at you, he does not distinguish Abraham or Rahab. He says, you are included. You have an opportunity to have living faith just like anybody else. So the first question for us is, how do I think God looks at me? And then, look at how he finishes this verse. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? For what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. How interesting. For Abraham, living faith was stepping into making sacrifice, to giving something up. But that's not what it looked like for Rahab. Not only does God give all kinds of people living faith, he brings it out in all kinds of ways. For Abraham, it looked like offering sacrifice and giving something up. For Rahab, it looked like hospitality and giving lodging and sending people on their way in the right direction. And I think we have to stop there and we got to think on that. Because too often, you know what we do? It's easy to look around and go, well, 
I see what that person's doing, so I'm just going to do that. And I'm not doing what that person's doing, so oh no, maybe I should be doing that. But if I could come back to Paul for a minute, you know how he finished? He said, we're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ for the good works prepared in advance that God has for us. God has prepared in advance good works for every single person in here. And it will always tie to what we have above this stage. Love God, love others. It's the law of love. So all kinds of people use in all kinds of ways. And then James wraps it up with this. Verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And here's what came to mind. Where, where have I gotten numb to living faith? Expressing itself through deeds. Because too many times I stop at intention, intellect, and emotion. Do I desire the right things? Do I know the right things? Do I feel the right things? Do I say the right things? And it's easy to go there. It's easy for those things to become substitutes for living faith. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Jesus follower, that is okay. But I will tell you this. The only place that living faith comes through is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Over and over and over. James points at it. It is a relationship that produces a faith that produces fruit. Every single time. I'll close with this. I mentioned that there's not a week that goes by that there's not somebody who comes to the doors of the office looking for food or clothing or shelter. And it was just over a year ago, I was sitting in the office and somebody came by the church. And um, usually just one of the staff will try to sit down and have a conversation with somebody. And I could hear footsteps coming down to my office. And at the time, I was working on a seminary paper. And I was thinking, I got to get this done, got to get this done, focused on this seminary paper. And it was Melanie. She was coming down the hallway. And I knew that she was coming to ask me to go spend some time talking with this homeless person who had showed up. I would love to tell you that I jumped off my chair and I was like, yes. I'll talk to him. I would love to. That's not really what was going on. I was like, please, please not me. I've got a seminary paper. I've got to get this done. I've got to get an A. There's a deadline. She popped her head in and she said, hey, do you have time to spend with this person? So I said, yes. And as I was closing my computer, that's when God grabbed hold and reminded me, Nathan, this is an opportunity I'm giving you to set foot, to step into good works that I have prepared for you. Got to sit with this homeless person. We were able to, and and you guys need to know this, because so many of you bring clothing and food here every single week to these bins out in the foyer. We were able to walk right over, open the bins, and be able to get food and get clothing for this person. They were able to get a job and get some references from here. Because of, because of stuff that people in this room brought through the door. And as I said, I would love to tell you that I just jumped out of my chair at that opportunity. But when I got done, I thought, oh my goodness. Why would I ever dread that opportunity? Why would I ever dread that? Living faith speaks loudest through our hands, not our mouths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Once again, for the reminder 
that it's easy to substitute our intentions, the things we know, the things we feel for actual living faith. Thank you for the reminder from your word that living faith steps forward, regardless of circumstances, regardless of consequences. And so, Heavenly Father, give us new eyes to see the opportunities that you're putting before us. Remind us, remind us that you have prepared good works in advance, that the faith you've given us through Jesus Christ actually works together with the things we do. And so write that on our hearts, Heavenly Father, because as we step out into the community, into the world that we walk in this week, we just want, we just want to engage whatever it is going on in life, whether it's our own lives or other people's lives, with your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next week at 9 and 10.